When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is sponsored by Book Riot Insiders, the digital bookish resource and hangout spot for readers. Enrich your reading life with our Book Riot Insiders perks. We've got three levels to insiders, short story, novel, and the epic level, and you can try any level out for free for two weeks. For podcast lovers, meaning you, insiders at the novel and epic level get access to two exclusive shows, the Read Harder podcast, which gives recommendations for the Read Harder challenge task by task, and Book Riot Remixed, where we randomly pair up hosts from across our shows to talk about, well, whatever they want. Insiders also get exclusive access to bookish deals, behind-the-scenes newsletters, our new release index, the Epic Book Club, and more. Sign up for your free trial at insiders.bookriot.com. Welcome to SFF Yeah, a podcast dedicated to all things science fiction and fantasy. This is episode 111, or 11 to 1 if you're Bilbo Baggins, and we are recording on August 20th. I'm Jen Northington. I'm here with guest Jen Zink, who is a Hugo finalist fancaster and possibly magic podcasting maven, who is normally on the other side of our podcast, editing them. But today she's behind the mic, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. And today we're doing environmental sci-fi fantasy. Welcome, Jen. Thank you. It's very nice to be here on the other side. Strange, but nice. (laughs) Yeah. So you are like you have some sci-fi fantasy cred, right? I, I suppose I do. Basically, because I've been a Hugo finalist, this is our fourth time this year. Yay! And even though I am no longer producer and co-host of the Skiffy and Fanti show, I was for almost a decade, the majority of a decade, I was both co-host, editor, producer for, yeah, the Skiffy and Fanti show, four-time Hugo finalist. It's very cool. Very excited. Uh, Super cool. Don't expect to win, but that's <laughs> it's not hard the to point. beat Charlie Jane Anders and uh, um, right. their podcasting partner, <laughs> Annalie it's, Newitz. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. It is a little bit tough. All I can hope is that they randomly decide to bow out one of these years, and then maybe we'll win. <laughs> <laughs> we live in hope. Um, exactly. And you have you have your own podcast now. I do have my own podcast, although it's been on hold for quite a few months because I'm still not in the headspace where I can do it. Uh, but that is Arc Nemesis, Arc as in advanced reader copy. And I review basically any book that has been sitting on my Kindle for so long, it's kind of sad. Uh, (laughs) Because I get review copies all the time. I'm kind of obsessed with getting review copies. But the amount of time I actually spend reading them is much smaller than the amount of time that I spend finding them. So, (laughs) yeah. 
Yeah. Well, that's I think that's very relatable <laughs> to a lot of folks, whether exactly. it's, you know, purchased books or early reader copies or whatever. Ah, uh, the TBR um, pile. Indeed. The perennial <laughs> issue. So we when I so Sharifa is on vacation. Hooray for Sharifa. And I was looking for a co-host and you offered and I took you up on it and we were talking about what we wanted to do. And you suggested environmental sci-fi fantasy, which I was very much on board with. But I feel like for our regular listeners, we, we, we need to differentiate that between that and climate fiction. Yes, not the other word. I will word. not say not the other my, word. yes, I'm not going <laughs> to say it. But we did an episode on that earlier this year. So yes. in your head, like, what's the difference? Well, it was interesting because <laughs> when you said, what topic would you like to do? And I said, environmental Uh, I was thinking in terms of Dune, obviously, because that Mm. has been on my mind. It is going, it is coming up in theaters. I'm very excited. I just may have purchased myself the Duke Leto Funko Pop because Oscar Isaac. So I'm a little bit excited about the movie. And I think Dune is one of those sort of, you know, tentpole pieces of environmental science fiction in that even though it is it's very clearly a a science fiction but it's also not uh it mm. has a bit of the the supernatural or, or the magical but it's all very you know concerned with the environment of dune of arrakis mm-hmm. right and so i've had that on my mind i just got myself that beautiful new version of it that has the you know aqua blue page oh, edges yeah. it's gorgeous and so it's just been kind of on my mind and so I was like, oh, yeah, let's talk about environmental or slash ecological science fiction and fantasy. Right. And then you were like, but not the word that we will not say. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what's the difference? So I had to kind of like think about that as what is the difference between climate fiction and environmental science fiction and fantasy as I was picking my books. And I think for me, the big difference is that environmental science fiction and fantasy is more the umbrella over climate fiction. And climate Mm. fiction is very much concerned very specifically with how the climate is changing, right? Especially in today's world, you know, it's kind of a big concern. I don't know if anybody's noticed, but, you know, (laughs) ah, the world. Anyway, uh, and so books about climate fiction... They they can often be dystopic, obviously, mm-hmm. but we also have things like solar punk out there that mm-hmm. deal with the more utopian side of our reactions to it. But I think environmental science fiction and fantasy is much larger than just climate change. It's not necessarily about climate at all. It's more about the environment as a whole, as a whole body, as biomes and ecosystems and our place very specifically within those systems. So that's really what I was trying to keep in mind when I was picking my books. And that does not mean that climate fiction is not environmental science fiction. Right, of course. And fantasy, obviously. It's just that climate fiction is a subset of our world, our natural world. 
Indeed. I think that's a really good way to put it. I like it. I like it. Yay! All right. So that's that's what you can expect to hear about in our book recommendations section. Um, but before we get to that, we're going to do some news. And before we get to the news, I'm going to tell you about our sponsor, which is Grand Central Publishing and Feral Creatures by Kira Jane Buxton. Once upon an apocalypse, there lived an obscenely handsome American crow named S.T., who you might remember from Kira Jane Buxton's critically acclaimed Hollow Kingdom. It made a big splash here at Book Riot and in other places. Um, And S.T., who is indeed a crow and also a Cheeto addict, uh, set out on a mission to save pets trapped in their homes after humanity went the way of the dodo. And now ST is back in Feral Creatures. He stumbled upon something so rare and so precious that he's vowed to do everything in his power to safeguard what could quite literally be humanity's last hope for survival. It's another big-hearted, death-defying adventure with ST joined by a fabulous new cast of animal characters and facing his biggest challenge yet, parenthood. Also relatable, I think, (laughs) for many people out there. Uh, So let's see. Yes. Oh, and AMC has made a deal for the film rights to Hollow Kingdom. So you can expect to hear us talking about that. Um, And Buxton's bio makes me a little bit jealous. It says she spends her time with three cats, a dog, two crows, a charm of hummingbirds, five Stellar's Jays, two Dark Eye Junkos, two squirrels, and a husband. That is quite a menagerie. Indeed. So if you, right, if you are a fan of Hollow Kingdom, you're going to want to get this sequel. If you are not, now is a great time to pick it up and then move on to Feral Creatures by Kira Jane Buxton. Thanks for sponsoring the show. All right. Okay. So this is exciting. A while ago, we, Sharifa and I talked about how NPR was running another poll for favorite sci-fi fantasy books, but they had introduced a whole bunch of new rules so that we didn't just end up with a list that was like J.R.R. Tolkien uh, forever. (laughs) And they have released the results of their poll. They've got 50 favorite SFF books of the past decade, and it is indeed a much better list than the previous 100 favorites of all time, as far as I am concerned. It's a really good list. Jen, did you take a look at this? I did, and it is an absolutely amazing list. Of course, I know that you have read way more of these (laughs) than I have, but I have read some of the sort of the the main ones, like the Imperial Rats trilogy, which, Mm -hmm. oh my goodness... Absolutely amazing. I'm a huge fan of the Dead Jin universe, which is another one that's on the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Bad, like it's it's some of my favorites from the last 10 years. Yes. So I'm really happy that we're actually getting a not just like excellent list, but an incredibly diverse list as well. And I think the judges might have helped do that because wow stellar judges can i just say yes yes the judging panel is is very impressive um it was let's see amal el motar and Anne lecky tochi onyabuchi 
and Fonda Lee, all of whom they do note had books series appear on the list, yes. but they, the uh, NPR powers that be decided that that was fine, which I support actually in this case. Um, I do support it. Yeah, I, I did that obnoxious thing where I counted how many of the 50 titles I had read and I came up with 36, which makes me feel amazing. <laughs> yeah, that makes me feel a little bit sad because I think I have <laughs> at least 50 of these books somewhere right. on <laughs> Kindle or on my bookshelves, and I just haven't gotten to them. And I was like, oh, okay, well, obviously, I need to do more reading. Lots yeah, more reading. Well, I'm just never going to leave my you know, house. Yeah, that's, I mean, all of us, again, have, <laughs> have these problems. But if you are looking for a list of sci-fi fantasy to dive into. This is definitely a good one. I also appreciate the way they've arranged this. Like, they kind of grouped them thematically in, in, a, in I think, a very smart and interesting way. Yes, absolutely. So, Which I haven't yeah. had a chance to really dig into yet because, again, I haven't read that many of them, yeah, sadly. Yeah. But, yeah, it was it was really nice to see this phenomenal of a list Mm -hmm. uh, appear on something like NPR because it means that all of these books will hopefully get some boosts and we'll just get more phenomenal science fiction and fantasy. Wouldn't that be terrible? Wow, that would be amazing. We're here for it. Here for it. All right, Jen, what do you want to talk about next? Well, I just quickly wanted to mention that the uh, Sir Julius Vogel Award winners were announced this for the mm -hmm. 21 results and though i have not read any of these titles the sir Ju julius vogel awards are specifically for new zealand uh science not just science fiction and fantasy wait yes Sir Julius Vogel Awards are specifically for uh, New Zealand science fiction and fantasy. And so if you're looking for science fiction and fantasy outside of sort of, you know, the U.S. dominated world, then this is a fantastic place to go look. And some of these authors are reasonably well known, I think, in the U.S., Octavia Cade, A.J. Lancaster, for instance. And it's just an excellent place to go if you want to find stuff that you are not necessarily directly going to find on American bookshelves, but absolutely should be considered for your TBR because last, what, two years ago? Oh my goodness, how long has it been already? The Hugo, <laughs> the, the Hugo Awards were hosted by New Con Zealand and... Unfortunately, that year, they also kind of um, shunted the Sir Julius Vogel Awards to the side, sadly, yeah. because I think that was a really great opportunity for the community to really be introduced to more New Zealand SFF. And so I just wanted to make sure that everybody was aware these books have been awarded. Please go read them. I do not think that you will be disappointed. There's also one of the uh, uh, winners might have been uh, a publication called How New Zealand's Best Fantasy and Science Fiction Authors Got Shafted on a Global yeah. Stage by Casey Lucas uh, in terms of the Hugo Awards from two years ago. Anyway, so, you know, just just something to consider looking at. Yeah, for sure. There, uh, 
there's the best youth novel went to These Violent Delights by Chloe Gong, which is on my list of things that I want to read. I've been hearing amazing things about it. So this is also a good reminder to me that I have I have some books to bump up on my pile. <laughs> right. So. Yeah, I've got a few of them sitting around. <laughs> always. Always. <laughs> always. All right. So let's see. Oh, right. We need to talk about Wheel of Time now because... <laughs> oh, Jen. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> so listen, listen, here's 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 the thing about Wheel of Time. I read them as a teenager. I have a lot of nostalgia for them. And my one of my pandemic projects has been doing a podcast with my good friend and fellow author Preeti Chibber um, about like, well, we're, we're rereading them and going to talk about the show once it airs. Uh, and it has been a really interesting experience to revisit them and like do that deep dive and like grapple with the problematic aspects as well as the stuff that is still good. So it's a really, it's, a, it's so, I know they are, no, they're, they are. And we're talking about it a lot, but it's really interesting yes. to revisit them. And, and we got, so uh, Entertainment Weekly has done a big piece um, reported by Christian Holub uh, on, like, it's a sneak preview. We've got, you know, still images from the show. We've got some more information about, you know, from the costume designers, from showrunner Rafe Judkins, who, side note, I only just this week realized is the same as Rafe from Survivor Guatemala and as a Survivor obsessive fan, also problematic show. I have problematic faves. I don't know what to tell you. That just like kind of blew my mind. But Anyway, we get to see like these these actors, they look amazing they for do. the record. Like they, they look so good. I mean, I cannot get over Daniel Henney as Lan. I will never be over it. And Egwene and Nynaeve look incredible. There's this great uh still of Rand looking like you know, heart eyes at Egwene, who's just kind of staring <laughs> off into the distance. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so indicative of their relationship. Anyway, <laughs> I, so I have, I have, you know, I, I'm like, I'm, I am very nervous about the show though, because while the casting is clearly much more inclusive, I still don't know how they're going to interpret the books. And there's a lot of ways this could go sideways. So there are so many ways, but yeah, you know, I, I, <laughs> I went and uh, scolded my husband, yelled at my husband, you know, whatever, yesterday, because he's the one, he's the reason that I read any of the Wheel of Time mm. books, because he, too, was obsessed with them as a teenager. And I was, I was not. Like, even yeah. as a kid, <laughs> I tried to avoid, uh, you know, white male authors in general. So mm. it wasn't until then that I picked up my first book and I got through the first nine. So kudos to me. Yeah, that Thank is you. a kudos. Thank yes. you. <laughs> At about 10, the halfway through 10, I gave up because I was like, well, yeah. clearly nothing is going to change about right. these books. And there are so many problems with the presentation of mm -hmm. women in those novels. And gender generally. Gender generally, right. It's, ah, ooh, frustrating. But I got through nine. Yay. <laughs> and so part of me is like, <laughs> I basically yelled at him because I was like, darn the world for making this show look interesting and I possibly <laughs> good. Oh, because it means I'm going to have to watch it, which means I'm going to get plunged right back into the Wheel of Time universe. And I'm 
just not sure if I want to go there again. Yeah. But yeah. Rosamund Pike is yes. phenomenal. And I really could not think of a better Moraine. You know, like, yeah. I, I, and obviously Daniel Henney. Thank you, right. world, for putting I him mean, in this show. I mean, come on now. Show. Thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I am excited about it, but very tentatively hopeful. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, it's a big we'll see, obviously. So Right, exactly. Yeah. Which which is fine. I mean, I feel that way yeah. about most science fiction and fantasy. And our our next thing, which I'm yes. going to bring up, because why not? Uh, <laughs> we actually have two adaptations to discuss. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of them is Anne Rice's Mayfair Witches, which... Also got picked up along with, I know they're doing the Vampire Lisette. Mm. Uh, the whole Vampire series ha- is getting adapted. But now they've picked up the Mayfair Witches, which is so heavily problematic. Mm. I only read the first one. I don't know if you read any of them, Jen. Have you? No, I am I am sadly not. Like, I just didn't end up reading Anne Rice at the right time and then have never gone back. But Sharifa is a huge fan. So I'm going to, like, channel Sharifa for a moment and just express on her behalf that I think she'll be super excited about this news. Um, because we all have, you know, problematic nostalgic faves. And, and that's okay, as long as we are in conversation with it, right? Exactly. And I but think... Yeah, I'm not Go surprised, ahead. I will say, I'm not surprised that they're doing, because I mean, you know, the Anne Rice oeuvre is massive, and massive. I'm sure they're going to make at least some money off of this, right? <laughs> I think they'll make Boku bucks, frankly. Yeah. Uh, I think there is a very good chance that this will do as well, obviously, as something like uh, True Blood, which <clears throat> loved the first season. Uh, talk about a problematic fave, right? Mm-hmm. Uh <laughs> There's something about vampires that just, you know, create problematic faves. I don't know what it is. Um, but the Mayfair, which is very specifically, is is more of a, even though it's connected to the uh, vampire series of Anne Rice, is more of a supernatural ghost story with witches and and a very sexy ghost, maybe, but he's also awful. You know, mm-hmm. things happen. And so there's a lot of really dark very troubling content in the Mayfair witches. So I'm, but it's also a really just fantastic supernatural ghost story and set in New Orleans. So I'm, I'm again, tentatively hopeful. Like this could Mm -hmm. go, especially if they uh, try to make it a diverse cast and really listen to, you know, sort of the things that went wrong with Game of Thrones in terms Mm. of its, you know, treatment of women and hopefully, hopefully, they manage to deal with it well. But it is yeah. a potentially very triggering show, could be a mm. very traumatic show for a lot of people. And so I'm hoping that they somehow come up with a way to present some of the stuff that goes on in the Mayfair Witches in a fashion that isn't automatically traumatic. Yeah. yeah. But who knows? Yeah. Yeah, so so this uh, Gizmodo piece that we'll link to by Rob Bricken does also note, as Jen does, that there's a lot of really rough stuff 
in here. Um, and so, yeah, hopefully they'll uh, get some people on staff who can be thoughtful about this and exactly. Which is... deal with it in a good way. We'll see, again, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about these shows? We'll see. Yeah. Uh, there's so much about television that can just go so wrong if yeah. it's not treated carefully. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, Well, okay. so quickly, one more adaptation bit of news. And this one, I was not paying attention, to be perfectly honest, but now I am. Uh, What happened was there, as I think some of you know, we maybe have commented on it. Foundation, uh, the Foundation series by Isaac Isaac Asimov is being adapted for Apple TV Plus and... They recently released a trailer, and I was like, I guess I'll watch it. It's got, you know, Lee Pace in it, so there, it's, it's at least got that going for it. And y'all, so I read the Foundation books as a teen and, like, dug them, but also they did not hold any real weight for me in the long run. Right. Like, I remember the experience of reading them, if not the details of the plot, and I was like, eh, whatever. Like, I feel like, I do feel like I've outgrown Asimov in a way. Um, but then I saw this trailer, and I was like, well, this looks very interesting. They've gender-bent one of the main characters, and a woman of color is playing that character now, and there it was a very inclusive-looking cast. Um, it's it's a very compelling trailer is is what I'm going to say. So we're going to link to Deadline, which has the trailer and also uh, some more information. Um, Denise Petsky is reporting on this. And the series is going to start airing on Apple TV Plus on September 24th. And I do, I know it's so, it's actually really soon. It's so soon. (laughs) We're used to talking about this stuff like five years out, but this is, this is happening in in about a month. So, and I, since I do still have an Apple TV Plus subscription, it's all Ted Lasso's fault. Um, Right. I'm going to, I'm going to give it a whirl, which I honestly would not have said. So I don't know, Jen, do you have foundation feelings no i did not read isaac asimov i know that's very strange coming from an sff person but no i mean uh, again older white men my dad kind of steered me clear of those he was Mm -hmm. was very nice (laughs) and he steered me toward more women writers so i have not read a single piece of isaac asimov that said this trailer is definitely getting me there, you know, right? like, and not just Lee Pace, who I'm madly in love with, but Jared <laughs> Harris, who I yes. am also madly in love with. And it's exciting to see them take these roles. And since I know just enough about the Foundation series, I'm very excited to see where they can go with it. I mean, it'll mm-hmm. be interesting to see how much this first, um, the first season takes it like is it only going to be the first book of the first few stories because i know that originally it was a collection of stories right right and then there's but there's like five seven novels yeah there's there's a bunch of it's i mean the deadline piece refers to it as a trilogy which is incorrect it was originally (laughs) short stories then it was a trilogy then he wrote like three more books like it's a whole situation and then there's Um, like 20 other things that other people have written within the foundation world so who knows where it's going to take us but i'm excited it looks like i mean obviously the expanse has been kind of the 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 foundation not really okay the expanse has kind of been the example of what great science fiction can be now and i think Mm -hmm. that the foundation is gonna fill 
that niche, so to speak. Yeah. When I was I watching hope. the trailer, I, I did think when I saw the trailer that that they were clearly aiming at the Expanse audience. So yes, it'll be interesting to see what they can do here. Wow, All right, well, a lot of money into it though. Yeah, Ooh. yeah, no doubt, no doubt. <laughs> All right, so that's our new segment. Uh, let's do another sponsor, and then we'll start talking about environmental sci-fi fantasy. So our next sponsor is Nine Days, presented by Sony Pictures Classics, which is a new sci-fi drama written and directed by Edson Oda. It stars Winston Duke, which is of interest to me after Black Panther. Uh, Winston Duke is a reclusive man who mentors human souls for the chance to be born. Very interesting premise right there. Nine Days also stars Zazie Beetz, Benedict Wong, Tony Hale, and Bill Skarsgård. So, you know, just a few great actors uh, and is now playing in select cities. So here's a little more about the plot. Will, played by Winston Duke, spends his days in a remote outpost watching the live point of view on TV of people going about their lives until one subject perishes, leaving a vacancy for a new life on Earth. Soon, several candidates, who are unborn souls, arrive at Wills to undergo tests determining their fitness, facing oblivion when they are deemed unsuitable. Will soon faces his own existential challenge in the form of Emma, played by Zazie Beetz, a candidate who is unlike the others, forcing him to reckon with his past. Fueled by unexpected power, he discovers a bold new path forward in his own life. So that's that all sounds pretty interesting to me. I don't know about you. <laughs> uh, yes. I mean, that cast is phenomenal. And yeah, that's a really fascinating premise. Indeed. Indeed. So again, that's Nine Days from Sony Pictures Classics. Thanks for sponsoring the show. All right, Jen, it is time for book picks. Eep! All right. (laughs) I guess that means I get to go first, yes? Yes, you do. Go. Fantastic. So my first pick is Crossroads of Canopy by Thoraya Dyer. This is an Aurealis and Dittmar award-winning novel and the first in the Titans Forest trilogy, all of which are out. So if you like to binge series, then this one is right there waiting for you. Yay! I first heard about Crossroads of Canopy from a friend, Australian friend, who, when this was like winning all of the Australian awards, that's what Aurelius and Dittmar are, um, and I was really just fascinated by the concept of a fantasy inspired by the forest, uh, forests of Australia, uh, given how rarely in fantasy we see forests outside of European contexts. Mm. So... Content warnings for slavery, suicidal ideation, child abuse, child death, and, well, just a completely screwed up society in general. Crossroads of Canopy is the story of Unar, a girl who runs away from her parents after hearing their plans to sell her into slavery in the society of Canopy, which is basically this, like, very top level of a massive forest, the Titan's Forest. It's ruled by 13 gods, and Unar's flight takes her to Odblayan land, which is home of the goddess of birth, Odblayan, where Unar's own magic is fully awakened. Flash forward a decade, and we find Unar is a gardener, an underservant of the avatar of Odblayan, because in this world, each god slash goddess resides in a living avatar. And the gardeners basically 
nurture life from seed into plant and so on. And that's what their magic allows them to do. Unar is absolutely, completely convinced of her own destiny to become the bodyguard of Oblaen when she is reborn a man. But when the Avatar dies, well, things don't go quite to plan, and Unar is very resentful when her two closest friends become full servants of the goddess, and she does not. Part of the reason for this is because Unar helps an enslaved woman, Illy, who is originally from the next level down in this great forest, the understory. Because unfortunately, the Canopian society is kind of rotten. Uh, it's got stark class differences and an economic and religious system that is 100% boosted by the labor of enslaved people from the understory. And the understory, meanwhile, is not protected at all by the gods of Canopy, and so the people there are in constant worry of the monsters of the forest. Also, when you're underneath the canopy, there's not as much sunlight, so it's not exactly as bountiful in some ways as the canopy is. At the very bottom of this world is Floor, but in this first book, we only get hints of what that place is like. Unar, convinced of her own self-worth, great destiny, and with a burgeoning awareness that Canopy is full of injustice, ends up in Understory and uncovers a plot that, if it succeeds, will take the entirety of a Canopian society to the ground. So the reason this is perfect for our environmental theme, even aside from the really major part that it takes place <laughs> in, you know, a giant forest... Uh, with a slew of gods that govern a bunch of natural phenomenon like wind and rain and life and death, etc. But Unar's journey is as much about learning about herself as it is about the biology of her environment and how her magic works with it. Uh, mm. So it's really fascinating because we get to see a lot of sort of the natural life cycle that Dyer weaves into the very sort of foundation of this book. Uh, you know, like at one point, Unar is told to hatch a bird, but the bird is boneless because she doesn't have the materials to give it bones, essentially. Really interesting look at sort of how the life cycle just functions in general and how many parts there are to it. Um, I think as we kind of discussed at the beginning, that environmental function works that focuses on the cycle having to be in balance in order to actually function uh, is one of the greatest parts of that type of science fiction and fantasy. And I think Dyer's working with how human society has to have a balance within it mm. in order to sort of work with nature around it. <laughs> but fair warning, Unar makes so many mistakes. <laughs> and there are so many consequences. She reminds me a little bit of like Steve Rogers, you know, like I can do this all day because she just gets beat down both physically, mentally, and emotionally constantly. She always gets back up, but it is so rough to watch mm. her go through this process. I was 100% wrecked by the end of the book, and I think it was in a good way. I hope. It was a good way. I mean, I love the book, so it must have been in a good way. 
Um, so if you like fantasy that is, well, one, not set in your typical European forest, and you really like a ridiculously conflicted, conflicted and very grumpy, flawed hero, definitely pick up Crossroads of Canopy by Thariah Dyer. I love the sound of that. It's and so also I'm very familiar with what it's like to love an emotionally compromising book. So, so much so. <laughs> I'll have to gird myself before I pick it up. Absolutely. That sounds I love a I love a tree story. I love a tree story. Yeah, I ended up with a couple of tree stories today. So, you know. That's, that's great. One of those days. <laughs> Here for it. Here for it. All right. So my fantasy pick is Elatsoe by Darcy Little Badger, illustrated by Rovina Kai. And this is this is an interest this is a really interesting book, y'all. This is it is ostensibly YA, although like the way that I tore through this, and I also I think you could I think it's very crossover, is what I'm trying to say. Like adults, yes, YA, teenagers, yes. Also middle grade, yes. Like this book works on so many levels and is doing so many interesting things and breaking so many rules in this very like quiet simplistic almost way like it's not even it's not flashy about the rules that it's breaking it just goes ahead and does it which is really awesome to see so this takes place in an america that is a sort of like parallel version of ours in which you know there are like magic is just part of life the supernatural is part of life there's fairy rings there's ghosts there's vampires there's you know whatever anything and everything these are all part of the fabric of everyday life um some of them are very dire some of them are very casual it it's a really interesting alternate world and ellie or alatsoe our main character uh is part of a lipan apache family and she can raise the ghosts of dead animals which is like a skill that has been passed around through generations so she has a ghost dog as a pet which is an amazing side note amazing animal character i know there's lots of y'all who love an animal character super duper gonna want to read this one there's also a ghost mammoth pet which is incredible so just fyi uh and she is you know going about living her like relatively normal teenage life but her very beloved cousin dies in a very suspicious way it gets ruled an accidental death like by car accident but she is pretty sure that that's a lie because he visits her on the night of his death in her dreams and tells her who killed him but you know who's going to believe a teenager, much less a brown teenager, right? Like racism is alive and well in this America. And Latsue has to deal with that in all sorts of different ways. So she goes on this quest to bring the murderer of her cousin to justice. Now, one of the rules that this book breaks is that her parents are A, both alive, B, present throughout the story, which I have... I don't think I've ever seen a book do that. Like, I just cannot think of a book that has not only two parents on the page, but they're like 
part of the story and they're involved and know what's up and yet the story still happens like what? they don't just lock I know right they don't just lock her in her room <laughs> like this is a really interesting and the way that little badger balances that is just fascinating from like a reader perspective as far as I'm concerned it was really interesting um and and the reason I picked it for this theme is because the natural world is so threaded through and again in a very like it's almost it's it's like it's not fancy it's not flashy it's just there it's just there at one point ellie is experimenting with fossils and she like brings back the ghost of a trilobite and has this whole experience that you know takes her back to dinosaur times in this very unsettling way um and you know the way that magic like fairy rings is impacting the 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 ecosystem is part of the book and there's all of these other ways in which the natural world is just present throughout the book in so many small and big ways it's really inextricable from the rest of the fabric of the story and i really admire the way that little badger wrote that like it's just so well done and it really i really found myself thinking about magic and the supernatural and their potential like i guess impact is the word i want on ecosystems and the environment in a way i have never done before so when you add that to the fact that I loved the characters in this book, um, Ellie is also asexual, so we get some representation of that on the page and has a great, like, friend and family support network. So you get this, you know, really lovely group vibe there. It's just it's just so well done. It's really well done. Can you tell that I loved it? I loved it. So. I also want to shout out the illustrations because they sort of tell their own story within the story and they're just gorgeous. It's really stunning. So again, that is Ilatsoe by Darcy Little Badger with illustrations by Rovina Kai. Highly recommend. Well, fine then. <laughs> <laughs> that just knocked it very top of my TBR. <sighs> Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> no, I've been planning on reading it since before it was even released because uh, on Skiffy and Fandy Show, we were able to uh, interview Darcy ages oh, ago. And, I'm jealous. Uh, their work is just so amazing. So uh, very excited about this one. And I'm just mad at myself that I haven't picked it up yet. But be that as it may, I guess we have to get to our science fiction, <laughs> which I am sort of cheating, kind of. Let's just say that just because there's only one machine in this book that I'm still calling it science fiction, okay? Uh, and also, I didn't mean to go with an Australian theme, but I 100% <laughs> did. No regrets. So, my second pick is The Interrogation of a Shayla Wolf by Amberlynn Quay Molina, who you might have heard about because of Catching Teller Crow, a YA that she co-wrote with her brother Ezekiel Quay Molina. Uh, she is... 
This is was actually her, her debut YA, and it's also part of a series. Yay! All finished. Go read it. Quaybelina <laughs> uh, is an uh, Aboriginal Australian author, and the afterword makes it very clear that she was heavily inspired by her own cultural traditions of storytelling in a really interesting way, and of course, the Australian environment. I didn't know how closely my two books would work together until I finished <laughs> them, okay? It's just one of those things. So content warnings for child death, depictions of detention, and sort of depictions of torture. It's mostly off page, um, but it's there. So this book is about a Shayla Wolf, the ostensible leader of a group of children illegals, quote unquote, uh, people who have unexplained abilities and that are called like fire starters, boomers, sky changers, sleepwalkers, and a bunch of other things. As one can imagine, based on what they're called, you know, illegals, the government of this world has put into place laws to control people with powers, either through detention or exemptions, if their powers are deemed either weak or harmless. This group of kids, the tribe, have all taken refuge in a great forest, the first wood, 300 years after some sort of cataclysmic seismic event called the Reckoning that may or may not have been caused by humanity totally stripping the Earth of all of her resources. So this is, in a sense, a dystopic post-climate change, but also just post, you know being terrible people and destroying the environment in all ways. Um, So, and the first word, meanwhile, is like literally the first forest that sprang up after this event. So, you know, when the earth was starting to heal, the first wood arose from the center of dry, dusty lands. And for some reason, nobody lives in it except for these kids. And they have sort of a weird connection to the first wood and it seems like the first wood is sort of aware of the kids who live there ashayla herself escaped the cities after her own parents and little sister were killed due to the government process of assessing children when their powers present hence why a lot of them run to the first wood because that doesn't sound cool at all Unfortunately, as of the beginning of the book, Ashayla has been betrayed by one of her own and is detained by one of the absolute worst adults responsible for controlling illegals, a man named Neville Rose, who, along with his equally monstrous partner, Miriam Gray, plans to use a machine that will dig out all of Ashayla's memories from her, including all the secrets of the tribe. So this is a pretty short book. Uh... I think even for a YA, it felt short to me. Mm. So I really don't want to give away very much. But keep in mind that Quay Molina was inspired by the storytelling methods of Aboriginal Australians. So that does play into the structure of what goes on of the plotline of this book. And it's really interesting. But... Let's just say I had no idea where this would go, weirdly, like I should have had, because it literally starts with Ashayla in captivity, unable to mm. use her sleepwalking powers, and on the way to the machine that can steal her memories. Like, 
that's where we are plunged right down in the middle of. So clearly stuff is going to happen because that's the first <laughs> 10 pages, right? Like stuff mm. must happen. And yet I did not see any of it. I was I was genuinely stunned by the directions that this book took. And it's done really, really, really well. So we do see some of how the world fun functions beyond, you know, her captivity through Ashela's memories when they are inevitably stolen. I mean, it's a machine that sucks your memories out, you know, that kind of hard to resist, so to speak. Um, so we get to see sort of the environment of the First Wood, the pact that the tribe have made in order to live in the First Wood. And we get to see more of how the society functions as a whole, because it is really interesting to note that even though there are clearly some very not good things about the cities, obviously they have illegals, this is a humanity that has mostly learned its lessons regarding the environment, and their tech and resource management is strictly controlled with their disastrous prior mistakes in mind. But instead of being in any sort of harmony, they almost seem terrified of nature. Like, it's mm. weird that the kids live out in the first wood. Everybody thinks that's very terribly wrong. Um, but things like even mining is controlled. There are only three approved mines, for instance, because they are very aware that extracting too much from the earth is a bad thing. But they haven't figured out that living in harmony with nature is probably the end goal here. Not <laughs> like totally walling yourself off from it. So it's fascinating how uh, Quamelina has constructed this, you know, sort of post-apocalyptic regrowing world with all of her traditions in mind. And it is very much like, like Australia, except that it's on one continent because that's all that's left after the reckoning. Like it was a big event, kind of bad. So... I really enjoyed this, and uh, Shayla is just, like, so good that you want to give her a hug and tell her that everything is going to be okay. So can mm. she please just stop trying to sacrifice herself to save the entire world constantly? Oh. <laughs> she is just so nice, and her empathy is, like, off the charts, and I loved her. There's also a romance in here, sort of. It is a YA. So just a hint of one. Uh, and I really don't, like, want to give away more, but let's just say that this is kind of a, a balm after living in a society that somehow still prizes the Lord of the Flies, when mm. the reality is that kids are probably more likely to work together than they are to murder one another. <laughs> you know, just saying. So again, that is The Interrogation of Shayla Wolf by Amelyn Quay Molina, and it is part of the Tribe Trilogy. So lots to read. Well, thank you for bringing that one to my attention as well. That's not one I've heard about, so I'm yeah. excited to, to add backlist. that to my... There's Quay Molina backlist here, so... Love it. Love it. 
All right, let's see. I'm going to give a quick shout out to Sorrowland by River Solomon, which I already talked about on a recent podcast, deeply involved with the natural world. But since I already spoke about it at length, this is just to note that it totally fits this theme. And if I hadn't already picked it, I would be talking about it now. Go read it. The end. My actual pick is like a little bit of a cheat here because I wouldn't normally pick the second book in a series to talk about in this way, but I I don't care. <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. My pick is The Fallen, which is the second in the Outside series by Ada Hoffman, which I do believe I have talked about on the show before. This is your reminder that this series is amazing and y'all need to be reading it. And the second book is now out, so you should get it. And The Fallen... So, okay, here, let me rewind for a second. So what is the what is the series about? This series is a sort of, like, queer, neurodiverse take on a Lovecraftian sci-fi premise. The humanity in this series is living in an age of a lot of technology, but the twist here is that when computers and technology became sentient, they turned themselves into gods and now strictly regulate the technology that humanity is allowed to have. So, like, the gods have all kinds of super fancy technology because they are sentient AI and they can do that. But humans are, like, not so much allowed to have that. And technology is very bound up in all of these religious rules. So if you are caught meddling with technology you're not supposed to have, not only is what you're doing illegal, you're also a heretic. And so there's these, like, layers of control built in to humanity's existence. But, you know, theoretically, this is all to the good in the long run. And the gods have also protected humanity from this nebulous historical threat called the Charis. Um, And so, you know, humanity is by and large, like, theoretically okay with the situation. But in the first book, our main character, Yasira, is a scientist working on a new transportation drive that is maybe going to, like, help people. She doesn't think she's a heretic. The gods do. Hijinks ensue. Like, the, you know, dramatic, horrible beings from outside of the known universe get involved and, like, things go horribly wrong. Um, And at the end of that book, Yasira is... You know, escapes the control of the gods with her girlfriend Tiv, and they take themselves into this zone where the uh, outside, quote unquote, forces have infected humanity and the the planet itself. And so the laws of physics don't really apply anymore. There's lots of like weird creatures and things going on. And Tiv and Yasira and the rest of their merry band of outcasts are trying to figure out like what comes next. So at the beginning of this book, Yasira is really traumatized by the happenings of the first book and is not really functional at this point. And Tiv, who is, you know, her girlfriend is trying to, you know, help her recover and like keep her sort of at arm's length from what's going on down on the ground while she manages all of that in with good intentions, but not so great repercussions. And the reason I picked it for this theme is because the way that Hoffman writes 
the changes in the world of Jai, which is where these characters are largely located throughout the course of this book. I mean, this is a multi- interplanetary situation, but they're largely focused on the planet of Jai and this one zone on the planet. And it's so interesting the way that nature is interacting with people and people are interacting with nature and the changes that have been wrought by this like outside influence, capital O, outside influence. And, you know, questions of like, okay, so if you had food growing powers, but you weren't allowed to use them. But in the meantime, nature is like also kind of trying to kill you. Like, what do you do about that? Like, how do you coexist with a nature that now in some cases has a will of its own, an agenda of its own? And also maybe it's not a bad agenda sometimes. Like it's chaotic neutral is is what I'm going to go with here. So it's a really fascinating look, not only at these characters who, side note, I love these characters. <laughs> I'm so attached to them. They are just so well drawn. And the way they interact with each other is so good and complex and nuanced. Like the the way that uh, neurodiversity is handled in this is just like, oh, chef kiss. Amazing. Um, and so much food for thought here in so many ways, uh, but also the way that they're interacting with the world around them and what like what tensions that provokes and how that influences the eventual uh, plot points is really interwoven and really interesting and also kind of terrifying to think about it. Like this is this is like horror sci-fi. Let's not forget. So messed up things are happening. Um, there is a content warning for self-harm that goes with this series in general. Um and this book specifically as well. But I just I just think Hoffman is doing so many interesting things in ways that really complicate and are in conversation with the problematic legacy of Lovecraft and also with modern sci-fi. So there's so much to dig into here. And the way that nature and the environment are their own character makes me feel like it is a must read for this theme. So, and again, nature isn't as much present in the first one, which is why I'm talking very specifically about the second one. But you really should read the first one before you read this one. <laughs> so, like, you have some homework is what I'm saying. Um, and again, that's The Fallen, which is the second book in the Outside series by Ada Hoffman. Well, seeing as how I've been telling everybody to read The Outside based on your recommendations over all the podcasts that I edit (laughs) and everybody else's. Are you saying I I talk about it a lot? (laughs) No, just enough. I just have a very good memory for all the books that you've somehow talked about on Get Booked. So I don't know what Mm. that says about me, but I still haven't read this yet. Ah, bump it up. (laughs) I know. I literally am like, so it's a book about AI gods in the Lovecraftian tradition. I just go around telling people that and then I still <laughs> haven't read it yet. So I, I feel like I have to like immediately. Yeah. Yes, do it. Do it. All right. Well, that is our show. Jen, thank Yay. you so much for guesting today. It was a delight to have you. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I've had a lot of fun here. Yeah, where should people find you when you're not behind the scenes editing? (laughs) That's the only place I ever am. (laughs) You can find me 
uh, at Loop-de-Loo, L-O-O-P-D-I-L-O-U, at basically any place that there is a slash identity at, which includes Twitter, Instagram, I think even Facebook potentially, and at my website, which is loopdeloo.com. Awesome. Uh, all right, let's do our closing housekeeping. Thanks go out to Dr. Baker, our other amazing sound editor Yay! for always making us sound great. Thanks go out to you all for listening. Also for your continued great emails and feedback. Thanks to you all. We don't always reply to every email we get, but we do read them. You can send those to sffyeah at bookriot.com. And yeah, whether you have theme ideas or feedback about the show or pet pictures and cosplay or whatever, like send send them on in. Uh, thanks also go out to our sponsors for making the show possible. And you can find me on Twitter and Tumblr at Jen IRL. That's J-E-N-N-I-R-L. Or on Instagram as I am Jen IRL. And we will talk to you next time. Bye.